to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hi, I am Colleen Petrus. I'm the Heart and Lung Transplantation Fellow from University of Pennsylvania. I'm here with Edward Cantu, who is an Associate Professor of Surgery and Associate Surgical Director of Lung Transplantation. Has a very active lung transplant research lab and is the Director of Ex Vivo Lung Perfusion here at Penn. And we are here to discuss Ex Vivo Lung Perfusion. Thank you for helping us out with this. Glad to be here. So we'll first just um, talk a little bit about what EVLP is about and um, what its origins are and how you came about um, finding so much interest in the topic. Well, my my original interest uh, started in trying to make more organs available for transplant. Um, I started, uh, my early work was all about xenotransplantation. So uh, after doing many years of um, working to genetically modify pig organs and having uh, new proteins and interactions sort of prevent successful use in lung transplant, um, I was starting to look uh, at other ways that we can make more organs available. and. Um, you know, I was still a fellow uh, when Schaff was asking um, asking whether or not our group uh, at Duke would be interested in participating in some of the EVLP uh, early work that he was doing. And uh, this was also at the time when SARS was uh, rampant in, in Canada. So, um, you know, I ended up not going up there as a fellow and um, was always interested in, in thinking about um, this type of uh, preservation and evaluation, but uh, never got a chance to get up there. And um, once I got uh, to Penn, I started doing work based on what they were doing um, and uh, eventually joined the U.S. trial uh, doing EVLP here. So um, we were the sixth center to start on on the trial. And um, our experience grew pretty rapidly because uh, we had a, lot, a very large uh, OPO and um, they were very interested in helping us um, gain experience quickly, so that helped a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as far as the origins of, of EVLP, the idea of out-of-body perfusion of organs has been around for a very, very long time. Um, in fact, uh, in you know, I think the first time it's mentioned in the early 1800s, um, organs were kept alive. Um, you know, uh, frog hearts were kept alive in the late 1800s uh, in labs in Germany, and um, you know, work was uh, then done in the United States by Alexis Carroll and Charles Lindbergh, uh, who were developing an apparatus that could be sterilized uh, and be used to perfuse organs out of the body. This is something that um, uh, was an interest of Charles Lindbergh because of his uh, uh, personal experience and his sister having congenital heart disease. So they were successful, were able to get a machine going, uh, were able to perfuse organs, uh, particularly hearts, and this all this before cardiopulmonary bypass. So uh, it was 
interesting and wasn't really used that much um, for a long time. And then in Sweden, um, in the early 2000s, uh, Stig Steen um, uh, used uh, a type of EVLP to um, evaluate a DCD donor and then transplant that donor. And he went on to start uh, more interest in this field and uh, then the Toronto group took that up and um, uh, were able to move the field uh, forward with their work and uh, interest has been increasing since then. Now there, there were three commercial products um, that were available with slightly different um, ways of doing EVLP and slightly different goals. Um, and, and now in the US there are, I think, three active trials uh, looking at different versions. And I think the, the community has been very excited about uh, the development of EVLP because there's tremendous potential. Um, I think, uh, you know, when you think about technology adoption cycles, uh, you know, in 2011 we were at the peak. I think right now we're still sort of towards the peak coming down uh, as we realize some of the limitations and we understand what the costs are uh, involved and um, as we start to think about how we can make things better. So um, we've come a long way and um, you know the history of EVLP is only really just beginning. Um, you know, as far as you know, what is EVLP, I'm going to talk about uh, that. I think um, you know, people would be interested in that and there's really a couple ways of, of dividing EVLP up. There's um, per, uh, to think of it as preservation or evaluation, thinking as closed atrium or open atrium, thinking of uh, cellular or acellular perfusates, um, and really in practice, uh, essentially they're pretty similar with some minor changes. You know, so the, the I guess the best way to think of it is an open or closed atrium, and um, whether or not you choose to do. Uh, open or closed atrium technique depends on your thoughts about whether or not um, having a positive pressure in the left atrium can uh, help prevent uh, cycling of the alveolus on the respiratory cycle that causes additional trauma to the um, uh, to the alveolus. So, you know, I, I think um, for our part uh, here at the University of Pennsylvania, we do use a closed uh, atrium technique. Uh, and this is the technique that um, has been uh, advocated by the Toronto group. Um, this is also an acellular technique, so um, the solution we use is um, um, a form of low potassium dextran uh, with human albumin. It's a little bit uh, hyperosmotic, so it helps to basically dehydrate the organ. Um, now, uh, things that are, are different um, from other systems. So there's that, the system we use is the XPS. The other systems available are the Transmedics OCS device, uh, which is a system that's mobile and can be brought to the donor hospital. Uh, it uses a cellular perfusate and an open atrium technique. Um, also, uh, clinical trials are in, in place for that uh, device as well. Um, and you know, as, as to which is superior, no one really knows right now. Um, I think um, there'll probably be room for both uh, in, in the future. 
I think um, it's, uh, you know, which is going to be superior is a very difficult thing to answer, given the number of cases that are being done in the United States right now between using the different devices and different techniques. Um, there's even actually a third trial ongoing in the U.S. Um, using uh, FDA-approved devices uh, with Steen solution, but at a regional center. So using a regional system of organ perfusion to um, uh, be able to assess organs uh, as opposed to a center-specific system. Um, and also, that system also uses the Toronto technique. So, you know, I think, um, you know, there's still a lot to be learned, and I, I feel that, um, you know, the, the differences between them, um, though fundamental, um, haven't been clearly established to be superior one over the other. Mm -hmm. How do you actually decide which patients get chosen and what are the indications for um, selection for EVLP? So uh, right now in the United States there, um, there are no hard fast rules for EVLP so allocation follows standard allocation practices uh, and uh, you know the way that I select now is a little different than the way I selected um, just a few years ago. Um, and part of that's based on uh, the costs involved and the time uh, involved and, um, you know, uh, other potential um, competitive factors. Uh, so, you know, um, in general, uh, if there is an organ that I feel um, can be salvageable uh, for EVLP. That tends to be someone who, or an organ that doesn't have a mechanical injury or established pneumonia, um, that the gas is under 300, and I feel um, most of this uh, uh, injury is due to um, neurologic pulmonary edema, then I think that's a very good candidate um, for, for this technique, particularly the technique that we use. Um, However, um, you know, that's not always the case and, you know, in life there are things that make um, you think about other types of scenarios. So I've also used this uh, technology for uncontrolled DCDs. Um, I've used this technology in cases where there's uh, concern for a, a lung cancer and, um, you know, the, the hospital where the donor is at uh, doesn't have uh, the capability of uh, performing CTs in the middle of the night or EBUS or any advanced diagnostic um, options that aren't available to us. So I've, I've actually brought back organs with uh, the uh, intention of scanning them, uh, then doing EBUS, then doing pathologic uh, evaluation and, and it's shown that you know there was no cancer and transplanted uh, someone with an organ like that. Um, we've used it in terms of logistics, so uh, sometimes, uh, you know, I'll get a call uh, that uh, there's an intraoperative turndown um, and, uh, you know, this is in another state and, you know, would we be interested? And, you know, I'll find out that the organ seems reasonable um, and, uh, you know, we have logistical issues because we have patients that are not in-house, uh, the organ's already ischemic. Um, and so in order to ma uh, minimize the ischemic time, I'll have them, you know, a, another team 
procure for us and courier the organs to us and we place them on the machine. So that's um, another thing that uh, we've been able to do. Um, you know, it's very hard to place an organ that's um, already ischemic uh, and been turned down in the operating room. So that's another um, type of uh, donor available. Um, we've also, we used to use exclusively EVLP for DCDs um, and uh, have recently um, liberalized our DCD use to, to only cases now where we can't get sufficient information to feel comfortable uh, transplanting that organ directly. Um, so th there are a lot of indications and the, as, as we've gotten familiar with the technique and um, its limitations, we've sort of tailored how we use uh, this technology and I think um, you know, as time goes on, there have been reports of using EVLP for uh, organs that um, have pulmonary emboli and thrombolytics are used. There have been reports of, um, you know, um, that all, all on a research side, um, treatments of lungs that have pneumonia that uh, after pathologic screening no longer have pneumonia. So I think there's a there's a lot of um, new uh, indications for this therapy that are on the horizon. And I think that right now, um, some of the limitations for this technology is uh, how, how allocation will work. Um, so you know, one of the big problems is the conversion rate of an EVLP is not 100%. So if I accept an organ for EVLP transplant, uh, as number one, it is very possible um, that 40% of the times at, at our center right now, um, that organ won't be transplantable. But if number two on the match list would have transplanted directly, that's an organ lost. So um, we've been working very hard uh, on this issue with our OPO, and uh, now we only use EVLP if every other center declines uh, and has had the option to decline. Um, because it would be unfair uh, to to lose, or, or it would be a tragedy rather to lose organs that would be used. So I think um, you know the the good news about that is you know all the organs that we've used, other other centers have turned down. The bad news is um, if I have someone who's sick who I'd like to use an EVLP organ uh, because I'm concerned of something or another, I can't use it for them. Um, it has to go, uh, you know, through all the, the match, um, you know, and I think, uh, you know, when I think about my patients and, and those situations, I, I still think that um, following that type of algorithm is probably the best because no organ that would ever be transplanted directly is ever lost. Um, and every EVLP results in an additional transplant that otherwise wouldn't have been done. So, um, you know, from, from our standpoint, our EVLP volume has gone down uh, following this sort of algorithm, um, but our transplant rate has gone up. So I think, um, you know, once uh, EVLP becomes more common and more centers uh, use EVLP, um, I think uh, the allocation issue can be better addressed. And, um, you know, having been on some of the UNOS um, 
you know, boards. Uh, I know that this is something that um, they're very interested uh, in, in tackling, but they wanted to first see um, you know, how the technology is going to play out. And I think um, you know, from my perspective, um, there's, there's only good things coming from this. And we're still in our infancy with uh, respect to EVLP. And I think um, you know, something I haven't mentioned as a, as a donor population, uh, or I've mentioned but not highlighted, is the number of uh, people who die of sudden death or uh, in the United States. So in hospitals, about maybe three, 300,000, and out of hospitals, about 400,000 uh, per year. So a total of uh, six, seven hundred thousand people die per year um, that could potentially result in donors. So let's say only uh, out of, let's make it easy. So out of 500,000, only 1% uh, are um, used for transplant. That's 5,000 donors, which is more than double the number of transplants we did last year. So um, this is something that uh, Tom Egan and his group at UNC has been very interested in and uh, has been, uh, you know, sort of the forefront of making uh, people aware of this type of, um, of donor because I think it'll have significant impact on the number of transplants we can do, um, particularly uh, using this technology to ensure that those organs are okay or at the very least to gain time so that way, you know, other um, cancers can be ruled out, next of kin can be uh, contacted and make sure that they assent for primary donation. You know, so there, there are a lot of stakeholders involved, but I think you know, um, that is a very interesting donor population that could have dramatic effects on the number of organs uh, available. Just a, an aside from an ischemic perspective, how uh, long can the patient's uh, lungs be on this machine, and how long does the ischemic time um, change um, in the procurement phase to get the lungs on um, EVLP? So this is a little bit of a contentious issue. Um, there are some people that think, uh, you know, a long, so uh, we're going to call it cold ischemic time one, that's from procurement to initiation, um, then once the organs are on uh, um, some t type of EVLP system, they're no longer ischemic uh, and they're warm, so they're no longer cold. And then there's a second cold down, cool down period, the cold ischemic time number two. So CIT2, we'll call that. So for CIT1, there are um, studies and people who believe that it really doesn't matter how long that is, uh, you know, up to, you know, six, 12 hours. Um, and the uh, time on EVLP can be up to 12 hours, that people have said. Um, in the United States, we're limited by the FDA to only be, a, for the system that we use, uh, only to six hours. And then on the back end, um, you know, most people try to get the organ reimplanted as quickly as possible, you know, um, less than six hours for sure. So, you know, it seems, um, you know, there, there was a lot of interest, uh, you know, of maybe um, this technology making it, you know, a 7 a.m. elective case um, as opposed to emergent, you know, one in the morning type case. But, you know, my experience has been um, with very long ischemic times, the, uh, the risk of primary graft dysfunction is, is pretty high. So, 
in, in our practice, we try to minimize the cold ischemic time one and um, two as much as possible, and, and then to make our decision as quickly as possible while the organs being perfused on the machine. So, um, you know, I, I think by doing that, um, you'll have a better outcome, and that's, that's been my experience. Um, and so we try everything in our power to limit um, the total ischemic time, uh, cold ischemic time, and to minimize the perfused time on EVLP. Um, and that's just been my experience. But that's, that's not something that um, all groups agree on. In fact, the Toronto group says, you know, you can, you can go quite longer than, than what I would feel comfortable. Uh, and their results have been very good. So I, I think, um, you know, finding out what, what the right answer is will come with more time and more experience. Uh, and, um, you know, questions about, you know, what type of recipient, you know, should you put... Uh, you know, an EVOP lung with a long ischemic time in someone with uh, scleroderma and uh, pulmonary hypertension? You know, maybe not. Um, you know, maybe that's not the, a, a wise choice. Um, you know, if it's a donor who's older and has a smoking history, um, you know, perhaps EVLP in that donor also with a long cold ischemic time is not uh, wise either. So, you know, I think there's still a lot to be um, described, and I think as our experience grows, um, we'll be able to look at, you know, um, certain clinical factors that increase the risk of PGD in general in an EVLP population. I would anticipate that the, the risk factors are going to be very similar. Um, and so, you know, I would say, you know, to someone who was just starting out on EVLP, if they, you know, your center bought an EVLP machine and you just started out, you don't want your first EVLP to be someone with a total ischemic time of 18, 20 hours. Uh, you want it to be uh, someone with ischemic times, you know, much smaller, hopefully less than 12. Uh, and then um, you want to make sure that you, you've set up everything to your advantage because it's better to gain the experience being very conservative early on and slowly expand out so that way um, you know your patients will do better and your your institution will have um, sort of uh, more faith in your ability to, to do these types of operations and uh, it, it'll it'll be a lot better all the way around if you know if I was giving someone advice mm -hmm. if you um, could speak on the terms of procurement and how the organs would be obtained in a different way to sustain the um, appropriate or uh, correct setup for a patient to go on a VLP, and um, and then how that would transition into um, how the setup um, looks like, what the setup looks like in general. All right. Um, so for us, so I'm going to talk about a closed atrium technique uh, using um, the system, uh, the XPS system. Um, so, you know, requirements. So there are cuff requirements. So you need to have enough uh, left atrial cuff that you can sew on these specially shaped uh, funnel catheters. And these catheters are shaped like funnels so you can cut them down to the right size and it keeps the pulmonary veins open. Because if you kink a pulmonary vein while you're perfusing, you'll get bad pulmonary edema in that organ. Uh, so. So that's important. You need enough cuff that you can do that. You need um, enough trachea 
uh, or bronchus that you can cannulate it with an endotracheal tube and isolate um, and, and be able to ventilate that organ. So um, for us, um, we, we sort of require uh, about eight centimeters of um, or, or more of trachea um, from the procurement on, on bilaterals. If, um, you know, there, there are modifications and I'll go through that and there are also bailout options uh, which we've also done, um, which I can go through a little bit uh, briefly, but um, you know, you just need to make sure that you can put um, the the organ on EVLP. Um, the other thing is for the pulmonary artery. So the pulmonary artery, ideally, if you can have a long uh, main pulmonary artery, um, but if the heart team is uh, procuring a heart, you may not get a large uh, main uh, pulmonary artery. So you can then. Uh, so on one of these funnel-shaped can cannulas onto the, um, the PA where it's uh, uh, divided at the bifurcation right by the rafe. Um, and so that allows you then to be able to perfuse it. So I think from, from um, a left atrial and pulmonary artery perspective, there are bailout options as well. So we've used uh, aorta to repair and uh, the pulmonary arteries, if they've been transected or divided, we've used uh, aorta also to, to augment the trachea so we can um, ventilate organs um, and we used pericardium to augment the left atrium um, in, in cases where there wasn't sufficient cough and you know all those things uh, work but they, they make you nervous as the surgeon because uh, you realize you're going to have to cut off all of that that area that you've just sewn to so um, you need to make sure that you feel comfortable doing that operation uh, when you're inspecting. And it, it allows you also to, you know, um, test some of your repairs uh, if there's any procurement injuries. So I think, um, you know, that, that gives a, a level of comfort when you perhaps have a team that you don't know uh, procuring for you or, uh, you know, some untold event happens during the procurement. But Speaking of that, are you able to take um, the heart after obtaining such large coughs or would this yeah. designate a specific patient that would only be allowed to take lungs? No, um, so for you using this technique, you can take the heart. So. Um, uh, for the lung EVLPs, uh, in most of our lung EVLPs, uh, heart's taken unless it's a DCD donor. And, um, you know, in the future that, you know, uh, that'll be a negotiation that's done prior to procurement. Um, you know, who gets what cough and how those things go because uh, I think for, for the future, um, we'll have to consider how to make sure that um, you know, hearts and lungs can be procured for those types of perfusions. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other thoughts for um, where you would like the program here at Pendigo and what your recommendations would be to other programs that would like to set up a similar um, construct for their transplantation program? Sure, yeah. Um, you know, I look at EBLP as also an incredible research tool, so um, we, we do a lot of different types of research using um, out-of-body whole organ perfusion experiments uh, and, and I think um, you know there's a lot of work that's going on so um, you know I think uh, where I'd like to see EBLP go here uh, is therapeutics so uh, my lab's focused on PGD um, and we're very interested in predicting PGD uh, and treating PGD so that way um, 
there's no more PGD. Uh, mm -hmm. So, uh, because PGD uh, causes a significant amount of early mortality and affects long-term outcomes. So, I, my, my interest has been in um, testing therapeutics uh, that can make the lungs um, uh, either repair injury that's occurred during um, death or um, to treat PGD after it occurs or to prevent PGD by diagnosing uh, or predicting PGD early in the donor and, and before implant treating that organ. So we've, we've done a lot of work on that and hopefully a couple of our um, uh, grants um, will lead to further work in clinical trials in that avenue. Um, I think also there's, there's work that others have done with um, immunomodulation and immunocloaking. Uh, there's work that um, you know, other groups have done uh, looking at um, treatment for pneumonias. Uh, you know, a lot of organs that we turn down, we turn down because they have pneumonia. So if there were ways of uh, treating uh, donor pneumonias and, and successfully implanting those in, in, in folks, I think that would be a huge increase in the number of donors that we could use for transplant. So, you know, I think, you know, this is the future of EVLP. The EVLP system, uh, whichever one you choose, is going to be a vehicle for treatments, uh, for therapeutics that immunomodulate the organ to make them more refractory to ischemia reperfusion. I think um, there are going to be um, uh, other issues that we can deal with, so maybe changing blood groups, uh, so that way uh, we can make um, more organs available to more uh, rare blood groups. Um, I think, um, you know, there are uh, significant um, uh, changes to the organs that we can make that um, could affect long-term outcomes. So, you know, I think that the future is going to be um, therapeutics and treatments for these organs, and I think um, you know, I'd like our group to be uh, sort of at the forefront of, of that work.